everybody, it's Jamie Starr. Welcome to the very first episode of Empaths in Love. Well, I never thought I'd see the day that I would actually start a real honest to goddess podcast. And I want to thank you for checking this out and coming along and listening. Um, I started this podcast to help empaths, intuitive, spiritual, mostly women, a few men to really align with their archetypes, find their soulmate and get divine love. And I have so many things that I want to share with you. And I was like, I don't have time to write all this down. I need a podcast. And I wanted to start this very first podcast by being a little bit vulnerable with you because origin stories are everything, right? And then what does a twice-divorced psychotherapist uh, have any business doing teaching other people about the archetype of love? And I wanted you to see sort of where I came from so that you can get a better sense of... um just how I got here. And so you have a little context for me. So I hope you don't mind. And if you, I guess if you do, you would turn this off, right? So thanks for listening. I got to say, like, my heart is pounding a little bit because um, I so rarely share this story. And this is a really public place uh, to share. But so, I mean, how did I become so passionate about using my skills and gifts to help empaths get the relationships they desire? And it's because I am an empath and I have been through some shit. And I think that, I mean, every origin story starts the moment you're born or conceived. But when it comes to relationships, let's just kind of start there. I'm an empath and I'm in love. Um, Now I have a partner who understands me, who celebrates me, who I feel really safe with and comfortable. We welcomed our son into the world in 2016, and it's been a a fun adventure learning how to be partners and also parents at the same time. Um, And starting this podcast and launching this business where I help others to connect with uh, love and heal from past love wounds. And, you know, I really feel that strongly and passionately because that's sort of where I came from. And my love story starts probably around the age of 12. And I have a hard time remembering this period of my life because there were a lot of things that I don't remember about, uh, being young. And one of the ways I remember is through photographs. And I wish you could see it right now. There's this one photograph in particular. It's me and my first boyfriend, uh, if you can call him that. His name is Peter Parker, um, which, as you know, is the same name as Spider-Man, which I think is, at the time, and even still, just think was, like, totally cool that, like, thought that was his real name. He doesn't go by that anymore. It's actually not his real name. So it'll have a, give him a little anonymity now. And we are in sixth grade, and we're at the sixth grade dance. And I'm looking at this photograph and I am sitting kind of a little on his lap and I'm wearing like oversized shorts. My face is flushed. My hair is messy and I'm holding a bunny rabbit. And 
I'm sitting next to him uh, and he looks really happy and he's staring at the camera with a big old grin on his face. And I have this look on my face that's a little bit hard to read, I'm like kind of side eyeing the camera and I'm, I'm holding this, um, this rabbit. And I don't know why that was like a prop for this, um, for this dance. We're smiling in it, but like the thing that you can't see is that um, he's gripping the back of my arm. Uh, this was not the first time that he manhandled me. In fact, I remember in that moment, I didn't want to take my photo with him. I wanted to keep dancing because you figure about sixth grade, I was 12 years old, 12 years old. And um, I had met him through a love of comic books and he was new to the school. And I remember being new to school and I was like, oh my gosh, you like Spider-Man? I love Spider-Man. I collect Marvel cards and this is my favorite. And we just hit it off right away. But quickly it grew into something that was more than I was comfortable for. He's like, you will be my girlfriend. And I'm like, I um, don't love you. I love somebody else. At, at that time, I was very in love with a particular boy. And I loved him for many, many years. He was like, thought my soulmate. Um, that's another story. So my heart belonged to somebody else. And he would do this thing where um, he was very moody. And in particular, he was very angry. And he would manipulate me and say things like, you don't want me to cry or get mad, do you? Um, he would get mad over simple things like me trying to leave to go home or um, not sitting next to him on the couch. And later it became not sitting on his lap or if he lost at a game. We did a lot of things that I didn't want to do besides not wanting to be with him. One time he, uh, we were playing superheroes because you're at that funny age between uh, childhood and adulthood. And I was definitely closer to childhood. So we were playing superheroes on the roof and he locked the window so I could not get back through the house. And I remember screaming at him, let me in. You can't leave me up here. And I was crying and I didn't know what to do. And he said, you're going to have to jump. And I'm looking down. It's probably like 13 or 14 feet to the ground. And I'm like, I'm going to break my leg. I'm going to break my spine. I'm going to die. And that was not the first time that I was with him that I thought that I was going to die. Um, I did jump. I ended up, um, actually I did okay. I like landed on my feet. I did hurt my hip though. And I remember like, I'm like crying and like wiping myself off, getting the dust off. And I was like, I'm going home. And I got my bike. And as I'm walking away, I'm like limping. And he said, Ooh, baby, why do you walk like that in front of me? And I, I barely had a concept of being a sexual being. And to be so sexualized in that moment, I felt this drop in the pit of my stomach. And that wasn't the first time or the last time that he hurt me and sexualized me and manipulated me. In particular, he wanted me to French kiss him. And in my naivete, I said, I don't want to till I'm 13. But I didn't realize that 13, which sounded so grown up to me at the time, was only a few months away. And come my birthday, there he was trying to stick his tongue down my throat. And I was like, well, I, I, guess, I, I guess I said that I would, which is not the experience you want to have for your first kiss. I remember that it was really terrible. So I learned, I was already sensitive, right? I, I wanted him to feel good. And then um, 
I was willing to do things to do that because I was naturally helping. And maybe, maybe that's familiar to you, but I learned to use my sensitivity to avoid situations that would put me in danger. I used it to soothe him and also to stay safe. So I had this knack of, um, figuring out when the time was for me to leave. And I would blame my parents and say like, Oh, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't leave right now, or I'm late. I have to go and do other things to sort of evoke some sort of, um, adult figure. Cause there was clearly none in these, in these moments we were pretty, pretty much left to our own devices, which was very dangerous at the time. I don't remember how, but I was able to get away from him. And I remember just being really, really afraid all the time. I had one class with him. I went to the teacher and I'm like panicking and breathing really fast and I'm crying. And I'm like, I, I'm like social studies, I think. And I'm like, I can't sit next to him. And he's thinking, oh, you know, sixth grader. I think it was in seventh grade by then. Um, and uh, that that was not okay. So he did end up moving him to the back of the classroom and and Peter ended up moving away pretty shortly after that. And I did not see him for many years. So I was able to get away, but not before really getting a sense that like, wow, that was not okay. And I, I was not safe. And I was reviewing the relationship. By now I'm like 13, almost 14. And I was like, I am never doing that again. I'm never doing that again. And so the next time I fell in love, I was like, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pick like a young dude who can't control himself. I'm gonna pick like a man, like an older dude. And I ended up falling in love with this guy who had a car <laughs> and a job. And I was 14 and he was 17. And it was so cool because um, by the time I think I was with him, eighth grade, in ninth grade and into 10th grade. And in our school, um, 10th grade was when you started high school. So he was already in high school and I was in junior high school when we were dating. And I can hear you panicking like, yes, he was far too old for me. Um, and the, the hard thing about it is that he was sexually ready before I was. And I had been sexualized from an early age and was very, and was kind of afraid of that. Um, so we, we kind of took it slow, but I was like curious, you know, and my blood was boiling and the hormones and things. And I remember, um, it was after homecoming, uh, 10th grade homecoming and there was blood on my thighs and I did not know, even to this day, I do not know if we had sex or not. I remember thinking, no, no, stop. But I don't think that those words ever came out of my mouth because I was too afraid to say anything because I thought about Peter and what he would do. And I was afraid that this, this guy would do the same thing again. I thought he knew what he was doing. I thought he would keep me safe. And I, I suspect that he thought that it was romantic and that he was really surprised when I wouldn't see him again. And I dumped him the next week. And I reviewed the relationship and I swore I would never do that again. <laughs> I'll, I mean, all I wanted, just like any girl, not any girl, all I wanted was a boyfriend 
who loved me, who treated me right, and understood me. I wanted my soulmate. I wanted happily ever after. And underneath it all, I just wanted to feel safe. And I went looking for that safety and I went looking at it like sort of through my brain, but also as this passionate person who, who believed that love could conquer all. And that got me in trouble after that. So the next time I got into a relationship, I tried again and uh, we got married. And I remember at the wedding, I thought I was going to die. I was like in this passionless thing. But I, I couldn't get out of it because we'd been together so long. I'm standing in a white dress. My friends and family are here. And I just didn't want to. Um, we had stopped having sex because when we did, I just saw Peter's face over and over again. And I, I relived that experience over and over again. I relived those violations. And so... Um, I married him anyway, because he was good to me and everything was fine. And I went to therapy because I was so unhappy and I was told you have PTSD and you're a victim of these things that happened to you. And I was like, okay, like I understand now I understand my place in the world. I am just made right to be um walked on and I am small and voiceless my boundaries don't matter uh thanks psychotherapy now I understand what happened and who I am I am a victim and this became like the archetype for me like this became the pattern for me now I understood what it was um I had a handful of therapists. Uh, this was early college over that time. And I'm pretty sure they all sucked. <laughs> so when that marriage ended, I wasn't that surprised. And in the next relationship, I was, I was dead sure that I had found my soulmate. You know, we, he, I knew him in high school, but we never got together because I was with that other guy. So it was like this delayed, like high school romance, this like sweetheart thing. That was when I studied to become a therapist because I thought, okay, I can do better. <laughs> I'm not going to make the same mistake this time around. This time I am in love for real and I can do it. I feel it in my soul that we are meant to be together. And that was okay. That was true. I think that was true. But the other stuff wasn't, wasn't good. We lived in a house. I call it the garbage house. Literally when I moved in, the house was considered uh, uninhabitable by the city. And I don't think that we were supposed to be living there, but his family owned it and the rent was free. They had no garbage service. And I remember I was like, I can't move in here with the garbage like this. And I personally paid for the garbage service uh, from then on out to make sure that we didn't have bags sitting uh, in the back room of, of food scraps and toiletries and I made sure that the house was clean of rats. This is the kind of living that we did. It, it was, it was squalid poverty, but it got me through grad school and I learned how to be a therapist. And I was like, okay, I, th I think this is okay. Um, and it was about the same time I started training in the magical arts. I studied ritual, meditation, magic, and I was studying with a group and became a high priestess of Wicca. I was doing ritual like all the time. I'd been doing ritual before, but I became really serious about it um, during this marriage and when I uh, 
was studying to be a counselor. But then I hit this wall. I was applying psychotherapy, the CBT techniques that I was learning, but I still felt scared and unsafe. And I was starting to think that maybe relationships weren't for me and that this was something maybe because I was a victim that I was not cut out for. Um, And my relationship with him, um, it really changed over time, especially as the poverty was sort of eating away at us. I got an unusual offer that year um, to carry the goddess Aphrodite in essentially a passion play. Um, It's the story of Persephone's descent into the underworld um, and her mother Demeter grieving her and Persephone marries Hades and becomes a queen. And I remember the first time I saw this play. So you have to imagine that like, They're not just actors and actresses up there. They're carrying the energy. So that is Persephone. That is Aphrodite. And it was really moving and it was so emotional. That was my first interaction with archetypes. Um, I remember the first time seeing it and watching Persephone get dragged away by Hades. And that's part of the myth. And my stomach just dropped and all the blood fell out of my face and I just stopped breathing and I was like, oh my God, that's me. That's me. I I have no control over this. I have no control over anything. Uh, later in the play, she um, comes to an understanding with Hades and she becomes a queen of the underworld. And I was like, so if I master my darkness, if I become one with it, maybe I'd understand it better. And then I I wouldn't have to be so afraid anymore. Maybe it wouldn't, maybe my power is through this wounding and not, it's not robbing me of it. And that, that put me on a path. And so a few years later, I got offered to be Aphrodite in the passion play. And so I dedicated to her for a full year. I did rituals every day. I would invite her into my body and, and carry her around with me. Imagine it's sort of, It's like an imaginary friend, except um, these archetypes are real. They do speak back to you. You have to kind of reach up. And I will absolutely talk about that uh, on the show at some point. Um, So I started working with this energy. Like, so what is love? Like starting fundamental, like what is love? What is it? How is it in our life? How does it act? What does it do when it's in love? Why is Aphrodite with Hephaestus, the the smith god, but also cheating on him with Ares, the god of war? And like, I don't understand. And it really started to shift for me. I started seeing myself differently. I was like, well, if I'm Persephone and I could be a queen and I'm Aphrodite and I could have this like divine love, but I was still trapped in this pattern, right? I was a victim and what I came to understand is that I participated in that pattern and, and, and in some ways caused it. And at this point I was far enough away that I didn't need the label victim, but I didn't know what else I could be except somebody that participated in this archetype of the victim. And the goddess showed me a path to deep soulful love and what it could look like. And it was, it was sort of like if the heavens opened up and you could see all of the possibility of love where you're respected, seen, heard, and celebrated, uh, where the, the lovemaking is passionate, where you 
respect each other. I don't know. I said that twice, but that I was like, Oh my God, that is the love that I want. And I'm looking at my partner at the time and I'm like, I don't think we have that. (laughs) I don't know if we can have that. I think what if so much has happened that we're not capable of having that. And it was a really scary time because I knew in this archetype of the victim that I was making myself unsafe. I was violating my own boundaries, but I didn't know how to stop. I didn't know how to bridge the gap between what I had experienced, what I was now or who I was now, recognizing that I was a victim, and then how to get to this love where both parties were free to be themselves and not tangled in each other and not trying to make each other feel better. Or how how do you be in a marriage if... um, you're an individual also, like all these questions. And I could see the potential, but I didn't know how to get there. I could feel that archetypes were powerful, right? So I um, I went to a, um, it's called the Assisi Institute. Uh, Michael Conforti is the director there. He's brilliant. I spent about $15,000 learning from the master, learning archetypal pattern analysis. Uh, we learned about quantum mechanics Jungian psychology, initial conditions, like all this techno babble stuff of like how myths appear in our life and how they, the myth is sort of the collective story and our dreams are our personal experience with those myths and with those archetypes. And at the end of every session for two years, I said, but how do I apply this? <laughs> how do I use this? And I remember Dr. Conforti would just look at me and then he would move on. And I don't know if it's because the answer was so obvious to him uh, and I was a fool for not knowing or if he didn't know or didn't know how to explain it. I have no idea, but, but I did not know the answer and I wanted to. And so I, so I had it sort of laid out. I'm like, I know that I need a new archetype, but I don't know how. And so I set out on this quest for that missing piece. How do I apply and align to these powerful archetypes? I'd already experienced some transformation working with Aphrodite and coming to understand myself better through Persephone, um, but I didn't know how to use that to help my clients. So by then, I had finished therapy school. I'd become a therapist. I was working in community mental health, uh, working with people with Medicaid, DSHS. I worked with very psychotic people and saw firsthand how archetypes can possess you and how your story and your victimhood can and trauma can really destroy somebody. It worked with probably the most sensitive people on the planet. Um, it wasn't until I learned hypnotherapy, right? I was always curious about it. But the tools in hypnotherapy, that became the bridge, right? Using uh, the breath, and doing holotropic breath work to align with your healing energies in your own body and experiencing the change for yourself, doing the the hypnotherapy and the trance and coming to reprogram those old ancient beliefs that we have. And I had that belief that I'm a victim and I could reprogram. It's like, no, I am powerful. I am a goddess. Like, I'm a sovereign state, like you will not harm me. And being able to do that in the unconscious, uh, because working in CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, like working with the mind wasn't working, but working with the unconscious was so powerful and doing soul retrieval and shadow work and ritual theater. And I became an expert in these things. And because now I had tools and the means, 
I had the how and the method. So I went about applying the work. I did sessions. I took extra training. I developed new ways to interact with archetypes and created opportunities for other people to interact with them too. And I saw over and over again the power that archetypes had, that if you could go to the embodiment of love, if you could go to Aphrodite and you could say, but he hit me, how do I find love again when I'm a victim? And to have her hold you and touch you and look in your eyes and tell you that it's going to be okay is the most powerful experience ever. I don't know if you can feel my gravity, but I hope that someday you have the opportunity to go up to that and feel that kind of tremendous healing and the capacity to be held in love. I wish that for you. There was just one problem. I couldn't apply these things in normal psychotherapy sessions. I had left community mental health and was working in private practice uh, where I am now. I work here uh, part-time. And I started to discover that the, the therapy, being a therapist was actually getting in the way that people already knew how to come to therapy. They would come, they would complain. I call it sin eating where then I like take their sins and their horrible things and try to turn it into something positive, try to reframe it for them. But I couldn't hardly use the amazing tools and techniques I used because how could I ask somebody to like build an altar or like pray to an ancient goddess or how could I like work to clear their energy or ask them to time travel. These are all things that we do all the time in hypnotherapy and ritual theater that I knew were profound and transforming. The worst thing was couples therapy. And I have a real passion for working with couples because relationships, as you know, are the most powerful linchpins of like life. Like if you have a good relationship, it just makes everything in your whole world better. So I wanted to help couples and couples would come in and they would literally argue in front of me. And I'm like, this is the worst thing ever. <laughs> and I would use some of my techniques with them. And um, uh, often they were hesitant or, I mean, they were pretty uncomfortable and I'm asking them to like, remember things that had happened in the past and get to core belief and change these and asking them to take responsibility for their own feelings rather than blaming them on their partner. And it was, it was like being in therapy, like got in the way of that, right? Got in the way of actually getting to the personal patterns and then healing them. And and I just hated people arguing in front of me. Like I just don't find that fun. And I knew that like there were other ways to help them that I could help them better, that they could have more profound transformation. And so I realized they needed to get the therapist out of the office, right? Get that out of the way and let the archetypes through. And so I mean, I'm doing that now, or I mean, I am, and I'm on my way to doing that more. Um, so I'm working on leaving my practice, at least reducing it, uh, creating events where you can experience these archetypes for yourself, the psychodrama and, and that personal transformation and uh, working the way I want to work with people and working with people that I know I could help. So I created this podcast to connect with you and to share. I'm going to have 
some guests on sometimes. I'd really like to do some sessions with people. So if if you have been wanting a session with me uh, and uh, can't afford to work with me personally or to hire me, then um, maybe we can do a session on the podcast and everyone could see the transformation that you're experiencing. I don't know, something to think about. And I have the Facebook group for empaths and and sensitive people that are in love. And I have an ebook and I'm making online courses and I have a program and a school. And it's really exciting because once I started applying these things to my life, I started following my own plan. Now that I had all these missing pieces, I got my soulmate and my life mate, which I believe are not the same. I got my happily ever after, which can I say is actually quite a lot of work. I'll probably talk about my husband in the future, but instead of a terrified victim who stayed small, I'm finding my voice. I feel safe now, even though my husband is a triple Scorpio and manages to push all of my buttons at once. And we have a little boy and he's the light of my life. And I'm manifesting the life that I want and the world that I want to see in the future. And you are a part of that. And you're a part of that by listening to the stories. And you're a part of that by sharing your story and of stepping into these archetypes and of embracing your sensitivity, not as a flaw to be manipulated by fucking narcissists, but as a a gift. When you heal the wounds behind it, it's an incredibly powerful gift. I help sensitive empathic magical people because that's who I am and that's who I believe that you are that I know that you could use your empathic abilities for good and helping others and living the life you want and making the money you want and being as powerful as you want to be that you are in this world to do and to be I know that about you and I know that you became sensitive because something bad happened to you and maybe it happened over and over again. And this podcast is about talking about those wounds. This podcast is about transforming those wounds and finding our stories and our voices together. And so that's it. Here we are. And that's where I came from. And it's a little bit of where I'm going. And I I thank you just from the bottom of my heart for coming along with me and Well, I guess I'll see you next time. I love you so much. Well, that's it. You just heard the very first episode of Empaths in Love, and I told my story. And thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this, leave some stars. Leave a review. Tell me what you thought. Tell me your tale. Be mean. Be nice. I don't care. (laughs) I want to know what you think. So I'd love to hear your feedback. And uh, the biggest honor you can give me is by sharing this podcast with others. And uh, I hope I'm looking forward to connecting with you more in the future. Uh, In the meantime, this is Jamie Starr signing out from Empaths in Love.